tonight we're going to look at this, this passage. It's a short reading, short passage. This episode is to be found in Matthew's Gospel and also here in Mark's Gospel. And the wording is a little bit different in two, the both Gospels, but basically it's the same story. Uh, you've probably heard of Christianity Today. It's one of the great uh, Christian publications. It's been going for a long time now. Carl Henry was uh, one time uh, editor of Christianity Today. And, and he says something quite, I think, quite striking. He says, some people live all their lives just around the corner from the world of truth. Some people live all their lives just around the corner from the world of truth. That is literally where this woman was. She's, we're told there in verse 26 that she is a Greek-speaking Syrophoenician by birth. So geographically, she lived just outside the borders of Israel, the promised land. And spiritually, as I hope we'll see, she was not far from the kingdom. She lived just round the corner from the world of truth. The trouble is, most of us are quite content to stay there, aren't we? Because the truth can be difficult to live with. The truth can be very confronting, and we have a thousand and one ways to avoid it. And so we're quite happy to continue living just around the corner from the world of truth. Is that where you are tonight, perhaps? Just lurking around the corner, not totally committed to Jesus yet. Still checking things out. You've been checking things out for decades. So, no, perhaps you No, it's a young congregation. Maybe years. <laughs> but you're still around the corner. You haven't come in yet. You haven't begun to experience the, the, the blessings of what Christ has won for you on the cross. You're still around the corner from the world of truth. But what happens when the truth comes around the corner to meet you? <laughs> That's what I'm praying will happen tonight. That's what happened to this woman, isn't it? Literally and spiritually, Jesus, who is the truth incarnate, walked into her life. And her life was never the same again. I think this is the only occasion, uh, certainly it's the only occasion I can think of in the Gospels, where Jesus steps outside of Israel into Gentile territory. Why does he do that? What's going on here? I, I, I want to say three things tonight. These are the three things I want you to see as we look at this passage. First of all, a divine appointment. And then secondly, uh, an awkward conversation, a very awkward conversation. And then an amazing outcome. Let's have a look at it under those three headings. First of all, you know, what is Jesus doing outside Palestine? Why does Jesus leave the promised land for pagan land? That's where he is. He's in Pagansville. I mean, what is he doing there? What's he doing in Gentile territory? Some commentators suggest that he's on holiday, that he's uh, taking a well-earned break. I mean, he, he, we know from the, 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 the Gospel of Mark, if you've ever read through the Gospel of Mark, then you know that he's been trying to get away ever since chapter 6. But the crowds keep catching up with him and clamoring for him to perform more and more miracles. And, and in this chapter, in chapter 7, uh, he's just had a rather heated exchange with the religious uh, teachers. And so he steps over the borders to take time out. That's what some of the commentaries suggest. And of course, that, that would explain the, the tetchiness. Of the, is, is tetchiness a, an Australian word? Must be a, must be a Welsh word. 
you know, a to be attachiness is just being kind of irritated by things, all sorts of things. And the disciples were like that here, weren't they? It explains perhaps why they're so tetchy. They're really annoyed that this woman is interrupting their holiday. Look at verse 24. We're told, he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know it. And yet he could not keep his presence secret. You know what it's like, you know, just as you're beginning to relax and unwind, the phone goes. I know it's your day off, but... So, so maybe it's that kind of scenario. Maybe it's a weekend away with the disciples. Maybe that's why he's, what he's doing here in the vicinity of Tyre. But I want to suggest to you tonight there is a much deeper and far more profound reason for this. This little excursion into Gentile territory. Maybe, unbeknown to these disciples, Jesus has an appointment to keep. We, we, if you're familiar with John's Gospel, you know that uh, he, he met up with a woman at the well in the middle of the day in Samaria. That was a divine appointment. That not, didn't only change her life, it changed the life of the Samaritans. There was a revival that broke out as a result of that conversation. And it may be, perhaps unbeknown to the disciples, Jesus has an appointment to keep with this poor woman, an appointment that was made in eternity before he ever came into this world. See, Paul, Paul explains it like this in Romans, in, in that very famous verse, in verse 28 of chapter 8. He says, we know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's, that's the real explanation. That's the real behind-the-scenes explanation of what's happening here, isn't it? No, no, see, notice what Paul says. All things, he says. Does that include a demon-possessed daughter? Look at verse 25. What brought this woman to Jesus? It was an unimaginable evil. She had a demon-possessed daughter. We can't imagine what that must have been like for her. We've seen pictures. I remember when I was in Brisbane as a minister in the, center, in the heart of Brisbane, in the center of Brisbane, seeing kids on ice. I, looked, I wanted to get a picture for the PowerPoint. I looked up kids on ice and Google and had all these little children doing cartwheels on, in icing rinks. That wasn't the picture I was looking for. Not that cute little picture of little kids with ice skates on. But people whose facial expressions have changed because of this, this unimaginably evil thing, this, this, this drug that actually changes people's personalities. And, and we've seen pictures of that sort of thing. We've actually seen that happening in people's families, haven't we? It was a situation like that. This is a thousand times worse than that. Her little girl is possessed by an evil spirit. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He says, this mother, no doubt, no doubt, has been sorely tried. She's seen her darling daughter vexed with the devil, and she's been unable to relieve her. But he says, yet that trouble brought her to Christ and taught her to pray. I don't know what trouble you have in your life, in your family, in your extended family. I don't know maybe what you're struggling with here tonight. This woman had a huge, huge 
unimaginable evil in her life and in her family. And yet, says Ryle, that was what brought her to Christ and taught her to pray. Without it, he says, she might have lived and died in careless ignorance and never seen Jesus at all. Surely, he says, it was good for her that she was afflicted. That doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel, does it? Without, it, without this, this terrible thing that happened to her, she might have lived and died in careless ignorance and never seen Jesus at all. Surely, he says, it was good for her that she was afflicted. Mark this well, he says, there's nothing which shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. We, we forget that every cross is a message from God and intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to make us think to wean us from the world, to send us to our Bibles, to drive us to our knees. Listen to this, listen to what he says. He says, health is a good thing, but sickness is far better. If it leads us to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, he says, but adversity is a greater one. If it brings us to Christ. Anything. Anything is better than living in carelessness and dying in sin. Better a thousand times, says J.C. Ryle, to be afflicted like this woman and live and like her flee to Christ than to live at ease like the rich fool and die at last without Christ and without hope. Don't you see then? There is great blessing wrapped up in the ugly circumstances of this woman's life. Can't you see that? And that's what Paul means when he says all things work together for good. It's not a blanket statement. It's, 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 he's not saying, well, she'll be right. Just keep a chin up. Or as they would say in, in, in England, just pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. That's not what Paul means. That's fatalism. That's not faith. Don't confuse fatalism with faith. It'll all turn out in the end. It'll all turn out all right in the end. People say, "No, it won't, my friends. It won't unless you believe in Jesus. It won't turn out all right for you in the end unless you believe in Jesus. All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are the called according to His purpose. And He'll use all things, everything, even the evil things and the unimaginably difficult things to." He'll bring all these things together in order to conform you to the image of his son. See, God, God's not the author of evil. God is not to blame for all the bad things that happen to you. But he can use even the worst things to bring us to himself. And he does. So here's this poor woman in desperate need, and Jesus just happens to be there in the neighborhood, in the vicinity. What a stroke of luck. No. <laughs> it's the electing, predestinating love of God. That's what it is. He, and, and, and this God, this sovereign God, who is in control of all the circumstances of our lives, big and small, this sovereign God who who brings down boundaries and raises up nations, this sovereign God, he can bring the greatest good out of the most unimaginable evil. Remember Joseph and his brothers? 
they, they hated him. They, 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 they thought they'd killed him. They threw him in a pit and left him there. And you remember what, what, you remember the whole story of Joseph and his amazing technicolored dream coat? <laughs> you remember the story in the end, what, how, how it turns out? He's there. He's the second in charge in Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth. And his, his brothers eventually come to realize that's who it is. That's Joseph. We thought we'd killed him. And you remember what Joseph said to them? He said, what you intended for evil, he's not letting them off the hook. What they did was an evil thing, and they're responsible for it. But he says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good in saving many lives now through this famine. So this is not an unwelcome interruption to Jesus' weekend away. Far from it. He's keeping an appointment that he's made in eternity. And you notice it leads into a very awkward conversation. That's the second thing I want you to see. So just look at the way that Jesus deals with this uh, woman in her need. It's, it's quite shocking, really. Very unchristian of Jesus <laughs> to talk like this, isn't it? So look at verse 26. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter, it says in verse 26. And what does Jesus do? He insults her. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, he says. Does that sound like Jesus? That's no way to treat a lady. I mean, at best, it's insensitive. At worst, it's downright rude and positively insulting. Get away from me, you Gentile dog. What have I got to do with you? I'm, I came only for the lost tribes of the house of Israel, not for Gentiles like you. That's what the Jews call the Gentiles, dogs. That's so harsh. It's sexist. It's racist. It's bigoted, isn't it? Or is it? Mark tells us that she was a Greek-speaking Syrophoenician. That means they were speaking Greek. And if they're speaking Greek, rather than Aramaic, then the word would be a diminutive. It would be little dog or puppy dog. That makes a bit of a difference. Not much of a difference, but it does make a bit of a difference. Not, not, not the wild dog, you know, scavenging around the dustbins. The unclean, fierce animals frothing at the mouth. No, that's not the picture here. It's the picture of a household pet. That's what the word means in Greek. I don't think I'd like to be called a dog. I don't think I'd mind being called a puppy. I mean, there's a kind of playfulness about that, isn't there? I'm not sure if I'd like to be called a puppy either. And then, of course, you see, you have to allow for the body language and uh, the tone of voice and the twinkle in the eye. And when, when I was a... Uh... <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I, I had... <laughs> I, I thought twice about that. I should have thought, that, I should have thought again, shouldn't I? <laughs> when I was a young minister starting out in ministry in, in Wales, in rural, in rural Wales, I was the only evangelical minister in the entire presbytery. So I was the only Bible-believing Christian minister in that presbytery, which, which stretched across a huge area of Wales. And I, I can remember that all the other ministers, they all, they all wanted to get me. Um, and I, there was one guy in particular who was very persistent. He, his name was Gwilym Evans, the late Gwilym Evans. And he was the minister in Brecon, and I was down the road in a place called Crick Owl, and he used to keep ringing me up. Uh, and uh, he was trying to arrange to meet up with me. And he, 
I knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to get the fundamentalism out of me or whatever he thought I was, you know. Uh, so I knew what he was up to. He was wanting to kind of in, wean me away from uh, evangelical faith into the wastelands of liberal theology. <laughs> and, but he was persistent. And I can remember him saying to me, uh, he keeps saying, oh, shall we have meet up for coffee? Shall we have lunch together? And every time I would say, um, yes, I didn't want to be too rude or polite. Yes, I, I, yeah. And then one day he said to me, you're saying yes with your mouth, but your eyes are saying no. <laughs> he was spot on. I had no intention of meeting up with him. Now, what you've got here, I think, is the reverse of that. When this woman comes to Jesus begging for his help, he says no, but I think he's looking yes. In other words, there was, there was something in the tone of his voice and the expression on his face that encouraged her to persist. And persist she does. See, see we've got to kind of think ourselves into this situation. Jesus is quite likely uh, picking up on the the, the, the negative vibes from his disciples, they're really annoyed that the holiday, holidays have been interrupted. They don't really want to be in Gentile territory. There's still a lot of racism left in them. Matthew tells us that they begged him to send her away. Get rid of her. She's spoiling our holiday. And so, so Jesus says, maybe, I'm, maybe this is a bit speculative, but maybe with a kind of backwards glance at his scowling disciples, why should I help you? You, you know that, that, that we Jews call you, you know what we Jews call you Gentiles, don't you? Why should I take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs? And the disciples were, you know, saying, yeah, preach it to her. Salvation is of the Jews and you're a Gentile, he says, looking at her. Apparently saying no, but saying yes with his eyes. And still, you know, I mean, however you look at it, it's still pretty heavy, isn't it? <laughs> it's still pretty offensive. But see, the remarkable thing here is that she doesn't take offense. Look at verse 28. <laughs> yes, Lord, she says. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. See, she doesn't argue with him. She agrees with him. She accepts what he says. She calls him Lord. She doesn't say, but Lord, that's not fair. I didn't ask to be born and brought up outside of Israel. Not my fault. And anyway, why should you Jews have all the privileges? She doesn't say that. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't object. Yes, Lord, she says. Whatever arrangements you make to bring grace to sinners is right. Because no one deserves even a crumb of your grace let alone to sit down at the table and feast on it. And if you choose a nation to sit at the table, well, that's grace. I'm not arguing about that. And if there's grace going, well, can I have some? Can you give a little dog a crumb? <laughs> if there's grace to be had, she's saying. And Jesus calls that faith. Do you see? She, she accepts. Do you see what's happening? She accepts God's plan of salvation. To the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. She doesn't argue. She accepts that salvation is of the Jews. She doesn't quarrel with that. She acknowledges that the Jews have first bite of the cherry. 
She accepts that the Jews have first place in the economy of God's grace. grace. She simply asks to be fed on the leftovers. <laughs> and Jesus says to her, verse 29, For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Now that is an, a, a, an amazing outcome, isn't it? That's the third point. Don't, don't misunderstand what's happening here. You see, she's, Jesus isn't saying to her, oh, you clever woman, you got the better of me there. He's affirming her faith. He's recognizing in this woman's reply her faith. And he's affirming her for that. See, Matthew makes it plain. Jesus said to her, woman, you have, got, you have great faith. See, it's not a battle of wits. This is not repartee. They're not sparring partners. Her daughter is possessed. That is not a subject to quip about. No, this is faith. What is faith? It's, it's desperately laying hold of Jesus because there's nowhere else to go. Who else has the power to cast out demons? She has such a view, you see, of the greatness of Christ. See, to have a devil cast out of her daughter was the greatest thing she could think of. And yet for Jesus, it's just only a crumb of what he can do for his people. That's great faith, isn't it? Spurgeon put it like this. This is such a helpful quote from Spurgeon. He says, it's like turning a key in a lock. The same key which locks will also unlock. It all depends on the turn of the key and still more on the turn of your thoughts. Do you see what he's saying? See, it looks like Jesus has shut her out, doesn't it? It looks like he slammed the door in her face. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. But you see what faith does? Instead of going away with her tail between her legs, she takes hold of those very words of Jesus, which seem to lock her out of the kingdom, and she turns them round the other way to open the door. Yes, Lord, she says. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She calls him Lord. She recognizes him as the Jewish Messiah. Matthew tells us she gives him his proper messianic title, Son of David. Yes, Lord, salvation is of the Jews. And if you're the one that they've all been waiting for, and I'm only a Gentile dog, well, I don't have a place at the table. Not yet, anyway. See, this is the precursor of the age of the Gentiles, which we now live in. This is why Simon and Lucinda are going to Central Asia. Because now the Gentiles are being called in. <laughs> but that's not quite yet happening. Yes, she says, I don't yet have a place at the table, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And so out of what appears to be what a, a most discouraging truth, she finds consolation and help. Do you see? Now, I want to say to you, that's the way faith works. That's the way you should read your Bibles. I want to say to you that there is, no, there is not one truth in the Bible that is meant to keep you away from Jesus. And if you think there is, you're reading the Bible the wrong way. Take this, the difficult doctrine of election and predestination. Now, I know those are swear words to some people, but they're actually biblical words. <laughs> so you've got a problem because that is a doctrine that's taught in the Bible. <laughs> the doctrine of election and predestination. And it's not good enough, Christian, to say, well, I don't believe in that. I don't think that's fair. 
You, you can't say that if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus because you're under his authority and you need to read his word. And if it's in his word, you have to accept it. But take this difficult doctrine, you see, which, which many people have difficulties with, and I understand that. People struggle with this, don't they? God has chosen the Jews to be his people. They are the children at the table, presently being fed in the economy of God's grace. Yes, Lord, but surely... If you're a God of sovereign electing grace, there must be some left over for me. If I can't sit at the table, at least let me crawl under it. That's faith. See, for some people, election is a narrow doctrine. It makes God out to be less than generous. Some big meanie in the sky who only wants the chosen few. Do you really believe that's the God of the Bible? He promised Abraham that there would be more than can be numbered. I don't know where this idea of the chosen few comes from. And we're living in the day of harvest. We're living in the day of gathering in. We're living in the day when the nations are going to be called in to sit at the table with Abraham and Isaac and all the others. That's the age that we're living in, the gospel age. See, faith doesn't see this doctrine as some narrow, restricting Doctrine, it doesn't see God as some less than generous God parceling out his grace to the chosen few. But faith never sees it that way. Faith takes hold of the truth of election and instead of being discouraged by it or put off by it, faith lays hold of it. So she says, she doesn't say, oh, well, I'm not one of the elect. <laughs> that's unbelief, that's not faith. <laughs> election? Well, maybe I'm not one of the elect. So don't have to worry about it. No, that's not faith. That's unbelief. She doesn't say that. Faith takes hold of this very same truth and turns it a different way. A God who can elect a whole nation to such privileges will surely have grace enough and to spare for me. Do you get the point? There's not a doctrine or truth in the Bible that is meant to keep you from coming to Christ. If you think there is, you're reading it the wrong way. It's unbelief that shuts us out and locks the Bible up to us, isn't it? Faith brings us in. It unlocks all the doors. It overcomes all the obstacles. It brings us into this world of truth. And that's what happened here. This poor woman who'd lived all her life just around the corner from the world of truth, a Gentile by birth and upbringing, an alien to the commonwealth of Israel, a stranger to the covenants and promises just like you and me, without hope and without God in the world, now by faith, she enters in. She hasn't got great Bible knowledge. She's not been to Bible college. She's not even done Christianity Explained. <laughs> but simply by turning to Jesus and trusting in him, she enters in. She lays hold of Christ. And she will not take no for an answer. And soon, very soon now, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus is going to fling open the doors to all the nations. And just as Simon reminded us, we need to be pleading, pleading with the Lord to raise up laborers for the harvest. As a matter of urgency, that's why, you know, the prayer and praise now on Wednesdays is the most important meeting in this the life of this church, of any church. Some churches, you know, say that we're prayerfully going to reach the city. Yeah, they, they, yeah they've, they've got all sorts of plans to reach the city, but they forget the prayerfully bit. 
unless we're pleading with God as this woman was. Unless we're saying to her, we, I will not let you go unless, I, unless you bless me. Unless we're coming to God in that kind of way, persevering, pleading, reminding him of his promises, reminding him that this is a day of grace, reminding him that he will not see of the travail of his soul, uh, uh, that he will, he, he, he will be satisfied, that his word will not go out in vain. That's why we need to be here on Wednesday. I'm serious, that's why we all need to be here on Wednesday. Pleading, pleading with God to open hearts in this city. So that people will come to know Jesus, the Savior of the world. See, that's the real irony of this story. I'm finishing with this. I think this is why Mark places this story here back to back with Israel's unbelief. Because in the first part of the chapter, that's what you've got. The leaders of Israel are giving him a hard time. But you know what Israel means, don't you? You know where that name comes from. It comes from the story of Jacob wrestling with God, saying to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God says to him there back in Genesis, your name will no longer be Jacob, it will be Israel, because you struggled with God and have prevailed. That's what we need to do on Wednesday night. That's what this woman did. See, if, if that's what Israel means, this woman is an Israelite, isn't she? She wrestled and she prevailed. <laughs> Everyone who believes in Jesus, this is the true Israel of God, those who've wrestled with Jesus and have prevailed. There's a, there's a lovely cheekiness about her faith, isn't there? It's his day off, he's on holiday, the disciples have put a, a do not disturb sign on his door. That doesn't stop her. He's otherwise engaged. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That doesn't stop her. The time of the Gentiles is coming and she's got her foot in the door and she's not going anywhere until Jesus gives her what she asks. My friends, we need to understand that's, that's where we are right now. It's the time of the Gentiles. The next thing on God's agenda is Judgment Day. But now is the day of salvation. Now is the age of grace. Now the gospel is going out to the nations. Now the nations are here in Hobart on our doorstep. Now's the time we should be pleading with God to bring them in. Yes, we should be talking to them, sharing our faith with them. But all that will go, go just go over their heads. It'll just fall to the ground unless the Holy Spirit is in it. But yeah, we need to be preaching in our churches, but unless we preach not in word only, but in the demonstration and the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing is going to happen. The only way we're going to reach Hobart with the gospel is prayerfully. We need the gospel, but we need to be praying that things are going to happen, that hearts are going to be open, just like the heart of this woman. And that's what you must do, my friends, tonight, if you're living round the corner from the world of truth, still checking out things, still not sure. Well, don't stay there. Don't stay there. Come in, take hold of Jesus tonight as he's presented to you in the gospel. Don't let him go until he blesses you. Let's pray. We're going to come to the Lord's table in a moment, so I, I want to pray this ancient prayer. It's called the prayer of humble access, but it's really taken from this passage. 
We do not presume to come to your table, most merciful Lord, trusting in our own goodness, but in your all-embracing love and mercy. We are not worthy even so much as to gather up the crumbs from under your table, but it is your nature always to have mercy. So feed us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, that we may forever live in him and he in us. Amen.